Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. This episode begins with a reading from Gia Salvaggio, who shares an excerpt from an essay collection that made her slow down. Here's more from Gia. I'm Gia, a freelance photographer and a library science student. The book that made me stop and slow down has been Intimations by Z.D. Smith, which is a collection of six essays written during the first lockdown back in March. And I want to share with you an extract of the essay titled Suffering Like Mel Gibson. The misery is very precise to design and different from each person. And if you didn't know better, you'd say the gods of comedy and tragedy had an end in it. Single human in the city apartment and things. I've never known such loneliness. The married human in a country place with partner and children dreams of isolation within isolation. All the artists with children who treasured isolation as the most precious thing they own find out what it is to live without privacy and without time. The writer learned how not to write. The actor not to act. The painter how never to see her studio and so on. The artists without children are delighted by all the free time, for a time, until time itself begins to take on an accusatory look. A judgmental cast. Because the fact is, it is hard to fill all this time sufficiently, giving the suffering of others. Thank you so much again to Gia for sharing. Again, the book she read from is Intimations by Zadie Smith. Now here's my conversation with doctor and writer Suzanne Coven. Tell me the whole story from the beginning. This line has impacted Dr. Suzanne Coven in more ways than one. As a revered doctor and writer-in-residence at Massachusetts General Hospital, Suzanne has cultivated a career that uniquely rests at the intersection of medicine and storytelling. She recently illuminated these experiences in her debut essay collection, Letter to a Young Female Physician. Whether or not you recognize the book's title, which is also linked to a standalone essay published by Suzanne in 2017, the piece provides a thoughtful starting point for new readers. In Letter to a Young Female Physician, Suzanne reflects on her expansive medical life through lenses including identity, family, and literature. The latter was especially pertinent to this conversation, as Suzanne shared more about the rituals that have informed her medical and writing practice, her thoughts on slow storytelling, and how reading and writing have brought meaning to her community and life. Dr. Coven was incredibly generous with her time, and I'm really honored to share this interview, which features two readings from Letter to a Young Female Physician. So without giving too much more away, here's Suzanne Coven, author of the recently published essay collection, Letter to a Young Female Physician. My name is Suzanne Coven. I'm a doctor and a writer. I'm also a wife, a mother, and a grandmother. And what I most value in life is relationships. How would you describe your relationship with reading and storytelling? 
We'll talk about Letter to a Young Female Physician in more detail soon, but in the essay Extensions, you wrote something that stayed with me, and you said, When I decided to go to medical school, my relationship with reading changed in an unexpected way. I believed at that stage in my life that one had to choose to be one type of person or another. I'd chosen to be the type of person who becomes a doctor, not the type of person who reads, an odd conclusion given my father's profession and his literary proclivities. In any case, once I made up my mind to become a doctor, and thus was freed of thinking of myself as a reader, I started to read. So I'm curious, as you reflect on that now, how that relationship has changed. My relationship to reading has really evolved over many, many years, starting in childhood. When reading was really fraught for me, I thought of reading as something that you had to be good at. And I tried reading books that were way too hard for me at a very young age and set myself up for frustration and a feeling of failure. By the time I got to high school, I, on the one hand, considered myself someone who was better at the humanities than at math and science, for which I had little aptitude and even less uh, interest. But in secret, I didn't consider myself a particularly good uh, reader either. There's a common misconception uh, that persists today among uh, young doctors I speak to, and certainly a misconception I had then, which is that you were either a humanities reading English major type, or you were a medical uh, science type. And it was as if you reached a fork in the road and that you had to choose to be one or the other. As I say in the book, this is really a rather strange uh, idea for me to have had, given that my father was an avid reader and an orthopedic surgeon. In fact, he had graduated from college as an English major in 1939 and then gone on to medical school. So the idea of combining the two was hardly new. And yet when I went into medicine, I think what happened with my reading is that I felt less pressure to, if you will, succeed at reading. Reading was now going to be strictly a hobby. So I was pretty relaxed about it. And I started reading seriously while I was taking pre-med courses after college. And then in the decades since then, what's happened is that reading has come more and more into my medical life to the point where now I spend more time reading, coaching writers, writing myself as part of my medical career than I do actually seeing patients. Has it been a welcome change? It's been a, a welcome evolution. I will never stop loving seeing patients. That's the core of what I do professionally and really, I think, the core of who I am as a person in many ways. I've only come to fully appreciate that recently as I contemplate retiring. But I guess the way I've seen it is it's not so much a change as a realization that they were never separate to begin with. That storytelling, poetry even, is so fundamental to medicine that the idea that I had to be one or the other was completely wrongheaded from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. And your profession sort of beckons this very fast-paced lifestyle, but as you've grown into yourself as a reader, or even just recently, I'm curious if there's been a story that you've come across, whether it's been an article, a poem, or a book that has made you slow down or sort of affected 
your relationship with your overarching practice? Hmm. You know, it happens so often that I can't even think of it as an epiphany anymore. I think everything I read enriches my understanding of what I'm doing as a doctor. I can think of one example. Not too long ago, I read Rebecca Mackay's novel, The Great Believers, and it goes back and forth between the present and flashbacks to the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, and particularly concentrates on a group of gay men in that period. My medical training was in the thick of the AIDS epidemic. We saw a lot of the early AIDS patients. It wasn't called HIV then, it was called AIDS, and it was almost uniformly fatal. And I had such a visceral sense of being carried back to that time, and also maybe even seeing my medical experience of that time in a richer way than I saw it then, or then I would have seen it independently in my own memory of it. And that's a tiny example. I would say this happens to me on at least a daily basis. Do you ever reread or go back to things that have now given you pause that maybe you didn't think would affect you in that way? Hmm. You know, I'm I'm so tempted to, and yet there's so much to read. And as I get older and older, so little time uh, that I try to resist the temptation. Though sometimes it's hard not to. I think an example there might be Kafka's Metamorphosis, which was very taken with when I was younger, though I certainly didn't see it through the lens of being a doctor. I, I read it before I was a doctor. And my reading of it in recent years, and that's one I have reread a, a few times because I've facilitated many discussions about it, it is so clearly about what happens when someone is bodily deformed in some way. And it's been read as an allegory of all sorts of things, including uh, anti-Semitism and communism. But it can also be read as an allegory of illness and the way illness transforms a family. I never noticed this the first time I read it, but um, Gregor Samsa's home is across the street from a hospital, which I'm sure was entirely deliberate on Kafka's part. But that's something that I didn't read initially through a medical lens and then did later on. It seems like the intersection of your work in medicine and writing can make the experience of reading more communal. And I'm referring specifically to what you've done as a writer in residence and building on some of what we've talked about are you able to share a little bit of background on this role and some of the highlights that have informed how you read and write? Yes, of course. So the way the writer-in-residence role came about, and it's a pretty unique role, there are writers-in-residence at hospitals. They tend not to be doctors. They tend to be writers who are doing therapeutic writing with patients. My focus is almost entirely on healthcare workers. And the way it started was about 12 years ago when I began facilitating a monthly reading group at my hospital in the evening, meet for two hours over bad pizza and read. Um, at first, we, we tended to read uh, texts that were specifically medically oriented. Over the years, we branched out and we just read good books, fiction, nonfiction, plays, memoirs, short story poetry. And that uh, evolved into a larger role where 
In addition to doing that, we're still going strong. I do a lot of one-on-one coaching of healthcare workers interested in writing, of which there are many. And I mount uh, literary events such as our annual celebration of National Poetry Month at the hospital. An example of how this works, I think, goes back to your earlier question about this intersection between reading and patient care, but also it's almost a triangle. It's the text, the patient care, and then our own personal perspectives and experiences as healthcare workers. Let me give you an example of that. So in this monthly reading group, I talk about it a little bit in the book. It's Literature and Medicine. It's nicknamed LitMed. A couple of years ago, we read Roz Chast's graphic memoir, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant, about Chast in middle age, caring for her very elderly parents who had made little provision for their own old age. And around the table that night, there was a wide range of roles uh, and ages. We had uh, retired physicians. Uh, We had research assistants in their 20s and everything in between, nurses, chaplains. Uh, It's quite a diverse group. And we talked about the text as a text. And we also talked about families, patients we had taken care of, those of us who are clinicians, in which elder care intersects with family dynamics in sometimes very beautiful ways and sometimes extremely difficult ways. And then what I noticed is the conversation started to drift more to our own lives and our own parents. And we had, without getting too much into the specifics of the conversation, because we have a confidentiality rule, we had older members of the group contemplating their own downsizing, retirement, failing health. And we had younger members of the group thinking about what was going to happen in the next few years with their own parents and their own caregiving. And it was really, uh, I think, a particularly moving discussion because what happened was the borders began to fade away. The borders between us as readers and the writer and her text and her drawings in that case, between people of different ages, people in vastly different roles between us and our patients. Uh, Medicine is a tremendously hierarchical profession uh, in many ways. And when we bring literature or any of the arts into medicine, is you start to see a blurring of some of the traditional boundaries. And that was an example of where that happened in a particularly acute way. Did it help you to clarify any uncertainties in your own sort of reckoning with what it means to be human? Oh, absolutely. You know, in that particular case, as I write about it at quite at length in the book, you know, I was remembering the years in which I cared for my own parents and the fact that I was now sharing, if you will, that experience with Roz Chast and with uh, my colleagues around the table made me feel much less alone. You know, in the specific experience of caring for elderly parents, which isn't universal, but it's, you know, it's almost universal, there's so much guilt involved. Even if you're doing your best, you feel 
that you are not doing your best because, of course, you know what the end of the line is going to look like, which is they're going to die and there's nothing that you can do to prevent it. In my own case, being a doctor didn't really help. It perhaps accentuated the poignancy of that situation. And um, yeah, you know, I, I think particularly, and this is something that I say in the book, that shame invariably insists on its uniqueness. And what I meant by that is that when we feel ashamed about something, whether it's imposter syndrome or the guilt we have about caring for our elderly parents, almost embedded in that shame is a belief, even if we know it's irrational, that we're the only one who feels this way and we're the only one who should feel this way. And if other people say they feel this way, they probably don't really mean it. And it probably isn't really justified. And I must tell you, it's incredibly powerful and incredibly healing to sit around the table and find out that everybody feels this way, more or less. And you might ask then, well, so what do you need the literature for? Why don't you just get some pizza and sit around and talk? But that doesn't work, particularly, I think, not in a hospital setting where everybody's so busy, particularly at work in a kind of a formal role. What the literature does is it's well, sort of like a can opener. It just kind of opens the conversation to a intimate space very quickly. I've never seen it fail. I can walk onto, and this is another thing I do in my role, I can walk onto a busy hospital ward in the middle of the day and a bunch of doctors and nurses go into the break room. Uh, we have an hour I'll bring in a poem, and with all the beepers and the buzzers and the noise and the rush, we're having an intimate conversation within minutes. And why that is able to happen is that we're having it through the conduit of the literature. And it feels safe, I guess, in a sense, because we're not really talking about ourselves. We're really talking about Ra's chest, except we're not probably a very almost outer body experience just because in that setting I would imagine you have to be so grounded and in tune with what's happening around you but those moments and those conversations probably just create a form of meditation. I think that's true although you know the practice of medicine is not unmeditative it sometimes seems terribly rushed and it is but it has a lot of sacred moments too, and even some slow moments. And in the most surprising of places, we certainly heard a lot of that in all of the accounts during the pandemic, you know, heartbreaking bedside encounters where hospital workers were holding up iPads for people in ICUs to say goodbye to their loved ones, you know, and everybody in full PPE and noise and bright light. And yet these awful moments were also very pure. So um, yeah, the role of slowness in medicine is profound and sometimes really very surprising. I can imagine. How did Pace impact how you collected all of these stories in letter to a young female physician? Were there certain parts of your process where you really needed to create conditions for slowness? You know, it's such a good question. And in a way, it's such a hard question to answer. What I find as a writer is that I need to be under a lot of time pressure to write. And it's only when I'm under a lot of time pressure that I can slow down. I know that sounds contradictory, but 
if I have lots and lots of time, then I dawdle and I digress and I skitter across the surface. But when I have a hard deadline, as certainly was the case in uh, the final stages of putting this book together, and also in writing many of the individual pieces which were published elsewhere on deadline, when I have a hard deadline, I slow down because I know I'm going to have to accomplish what I need to accomplish sentence by sentence, word by word. Isn't that a funny, I never really thought about it that way, but it's true. If I have a lot of time, I tend to kind of rush and generalize and think of the piece as a whole. When I'm under pressure, my writing starts getting very slow and very granular. Yeah, I actually sort of work in the same way. And I want to talk more about rituals or details that inform your medical and writing practice. But maybe we can have you read from the book first. Yeah, and appropriately enough, this passage is about medicine as a practice. Medicine is a practice in the way that yoga or meditation is for many people, an activity repeated so often that it becomes a kind of incantation. I have for so long stood to my patients' right sides, as physicians have done for centuries, palpated the lymph nodes in their necks, armpits, and groins, auscultated their hearts and lungs, asked the same questions I first learned to ask nearly 40 years ago. What makes the pain better? What makes it worse? These rituals are for me an anchor without which I fear I might simply drift away. Of course, I suspected all along that what I feared wasn't abandoning my patients, but myself. Tell me about some of those rituals and practices that have helped you stay anchored to yourself and if there's been any interesting intersections between medicine and writing. What an interesting thing to think about. So medicine, the way medicine is taught, it's highly ritualized. You always stand to one side of the patient you always examine a patient in a particular order. You always, when you are presenting a patient on rounds, tell that story in a highly stylized and structured way, beginning with why is the patient there, what is their past medical history, and so forth. And this has been true for generations. I'll never forget one time when I was a medical student, I admitted to the hospital I was on the team, of course, that admitted to the hospital a very venerable retired professor of medicine in his 80s. And as I went through what's called the review of systems, where you ask, have you ever had headaches, neck pain, and so forth, he recited it with me because, of course, this was part of his DNA, even though he hadn't done it for a while. So medicine is highly ritualized, mostly because you don't want to forget anything. So you have to do everything in a certain way so that you don't forget. In terms of writing, when I started to write, and I started pretty late, I didn't take night courses in writing until I was in my 40s. I'm now in my 60s. When I started writing, I read all sorts of articles about rituals for writing and certain numbers of words per day and what time of day uh, was best to write and 
whether to write by computer or longhand. And I must say, all of this made me very, very anxious because none of it worked for me. What worked for me was working on a particular project and, as I said before, having a deadline. And once I did, then the ritual fell into place. And in fact, I found that once I was deeply into a project and had a deadline, I could write in the middle of a crowded room. I could uh, write when I was tired. I could write when I was under a lot of stress. It didn't matter because I had this kind of forward motion. My main ritual now, which as I reflect on it, is not so terribly different than what I um, sort of learned through the years being a doctor, is to keep going even when something feels awful. Even when I feel I don't know what I'm doing, I feel very uncertain. I feel very out of control. I feel very tempted to just scrap the whole thing. I've developed a kind of faith that if I just keep returning to it, it will melt at a certain point. Another analogy that comes to mind, I've heard a number of analogies to describe this, and it's a common experience for writers. One teacher of mine used to talk about how, you know, you're fanning the flames of that very damp campfire, and you fan them, and you fan them, and you fan them, and you're ready to walk away, and then poof, they ignite. Or I think the analogy I think about is when you're cooking a stew and it just seems watery and the potatoes still have sharp edges and it just seems like it's never going to be stew. And then you lift the lid and it's got that nice melty look to it. For me, that's what writing is like. It starts out and you're just galloping down the road. And you think you have a wonderful idea, and it's just going to be so easy to get it down. And then very quickly, you realize that it's just not working at all. And when I feel that way, I tell myself, this is normal. Keep going. I'm not sure, getting back to deadlines, that I would have the discipline to keep going if I didn't have a deadline, because that feeling of being completely at sea is so uncomfortable that I'm not sure I'd have the discipline to keep going. And it's been said many times by many different people, the main difference between people who have great ideas and even great talent and people who actually bring a piece of writing to completion, the main difference is the willingness to sit with that discomfort. It's hard. It is hard. And I was just thinking, navigating discomfort and deadlines, even in a greater sense, against the backdrop of the digital age in a time where you're creating something or even sharing something, there is an element of performance that has sort of clouded how we create things and just connect with one another. You know, as I mentioned before we started recording, my interest in this is really stemmed from how we navigate our pace and create with intention in an age where it is predicated on moving fast Mm -hmm. and just sort of output over anything else. And I'm curious, as the book comes out at the height of the digital age, do you have a take on slow content or storytelling? Yeah. So what I think about a lot, what I talk about a lot to healthcare workers I'm mentoring with their writing is that the good news and the bad news right now is that it's not all that hard to get published. There are so many places you can publish. And, you know, healthcare workers particularly 
we haven't talked about this, but, you know, our culture is the opposite of the writing culture. You know, in many ways, we're not encouraged to make mistakes. We're not encouraged to revise. We're encouraged to get it right the first time and to do it as quickly as possible. So a couple of things that come up a lot in my writing coaching with healthcare workers related to what you're just talking about is, first of all, the idea of revision. Most people are impatient with revision. In George Saunders' wonderful new book, he says that the main thing that separates the people who produce good writing and people who who don't isn't talent. It's the willingness to revise. It's not unusual for a healthcare worker to hand me a piece of writing for me to make some suggestions uh, to think about for the next revision and for them to send it back to me an hour later. So the pace is just different. But the other thing about digital publication is that there are many healthcare workers who are prolifically uh, publishing online. And sometimes from very early in their careers, we have a number of medical students and residents who are publishing online, and, and, and much of it is quite wonderful. But then I may have another mentee who looks at that and is feeling very intimidated by it because they feel they're supposed to be doing the same thing. And somehow, if you're not cranking out publications constantly and at a very fast pace, because you can, that somehow you're not a real writer. When in fact, you know, this book that I have coming out, people ask me how long it took to write. And I say, well, I started thinking about it about 25 years ago. I started publishing some of the essays that are included in it about 10 years ago. I started writing it in earnest about six years ago, at which time I was really writing a very different book than came to pass. And then between signing a contract and published book was about a year and a half, which in the writing world is very, very fast. In the medical world is an eternity. So yeah, this ability to be published and the ability to be published quickly is something I think about a lot. And I think it's a great way of getting new voices uh, out there, but I think it can make people feel that somehow that's what they have to do in order to be a writer. And that's simply not true. What's been one of the things, biggest things that you've had to revise and how you approach writing, medicine, you've moved to this very interconnected age that maybe earlier in your career you didn't have to consider? Well, of course, the biggest challenge in medicine has been the electronic medical record. When I was in medical training, computers were pretty primitive in the 80s, and we were doing handwritten notes and charts. When I started in practice, we had electronic medical records, except they were either typed or dictated in free text as narration and not in front of the patient. Now, and I've written about this not so much in this book, but elsewhere, the electronic medical record has a couple of challenges. One is that it almost forces you to type in front of the patient, although that's something I've really resisted, which means, of course, you're not making eye contact. As uh, someone once pointed out, it's, it's kind of like texting and driving. I mean, taking care of a patient is like a really important thing that requires your attention, and it's kind of hard to do it while you're typing. But the other thing that it's done is that it has disarticulated in both senses of the word, both physically and in terms of storytelling, it has disarticulated the patient narrative. 
So the electronic medical record system that my hospital uses, which is a very common one, is arranged such that if you're meeting a patient for the first time, it's very difficult to figure out reading the notes, who they are or what their story is. And that didn't used to be the case. So the adjustment I've made is really kind of a defensive one. I have to use this system as part of my job. And some of it is is actually I have to do by law. But I've made the decision that for most of my interaction with a patient, I'm not looking at the screen. I literally turn my chair so that I can't look at the screen, so that I have to look them in the eye. And I also, as I write my notes, I try to back channel a narrative into them. So I find a way to express that this is somebody who suffered terrible losses when they were young, somebody who has a difficult relationship with their children, somebody who has a terrible anxieties about their health, the kinds of things that there may not be a slot for in the electronic record, but which are crucial things for people to know if they're going to be taking care of them. It probably makes all the difference in your limited time that's with them. I think it helps. It certainly helps me. It certainly enriches my experience. I don't like to think of my patients as problemlists, and I don't think they like that either. So I think in various ways, this is something that a lot of doctors and nurses are trying to negotiate right now. It's not just me. I can imagine. And, you know, zooming out your work, so much of it comes to life through conversations and also through asking questions. And I'm curious as we kind of continue to move through this really historic time, if there is a particular question that you hope people start asking you more often? Hmm. Well, I mean, the, the, the question that comes to mind to me, which I started doing a long time ago with patients, but I also do it in, in other settings because I've appreciated so much when it's asked of me, which is to say to somebody, tell me the whole story from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I find this clinically incredibly fruitful, but it comes up in other ways. Say I get a request from a medical student who wants to talk about incorporating writing into their career. And, you know, they're probably assuming that I'm very busy and they need to get to the point very quickly. And so they immediately launch into a question they have about a writing idea they have. And I find it's almost become instinctive at this point for me. I say, well, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Tell me where you're from. Tell me you know, where you went to college, what you majored in. And I find all of this just absolutely necessary. I I find that I can't guide somebody unless I know a little bit about who they are. And I started doing that the first time it was done to me. You know, I was in the middle of a medical crisis. Um, You know, I wasn't bleeding to death. It wouldn't have been appropriate then. And a doctor sat down, put down his pen, didn't look at the computer and said, tell me the whole story from the beginning. And I cannot tell you how healing even that was. Following up on that, uh, in the medical community, what's something that you hope more young female physicians ask one another? Because I think that extension of interest in humanity is probably something your colleagues need to get through this time, especially. Mm -hmm. You know, What I hope my young female colleagues ask 
of themselves and of each other is that we stop being so terribly hard on ourselves and recognize that so much of the feeling that not just young female physicians, but people in general, it seems to me, I have of being imposters and inadequate to the task is internalized sexism, racism, ageism, ableism, homophobia, and so forth. And that if, for example, a young female physician is sitting at a conference table feeling that she's not as worthy as some of the other people there, there are some good reasons for that. And they don't have to do with her. They have to do with sexism in society and sexism in medicine, which persists very strongly. And I think we need to take some of that burden off of ourselves and recognize that this is a systemic issue and it's not only ours to fix. You touch on that so beautifully in the book through so many of the essays. And I think there's probably so much more to dive into with this conversation. But I'd like to close this interview by actually starting at the beginning of your book and having you read a bit of the title essay, Letter to a Young Female Physician. My first few years in practice I was sure that being a good doctor meant curing people. I felt buoyed by every cleared chest x-ray, every normalized blood pressure. Unfortunately, the converse was also true. I took cancer recurrences personally. When the emergency room page to alert me that one of my patients had arrived there, I assumed that some error on my part must have precipitated the crisis. Now, late in my career, I understand that I've been neither so weak nor so powerful. Sometimes, even after I studied my hardest and tried my best, people got sick and died anyway. How I wish I could spare you years of self-flagellation and transport you directly to this state of humility. I now understand that I should have spent less time worrying about being a fraud and more time appreciating about myself some of the things my patients appreciate most about me, my large inventory of jokes, my knack for knowing when to butt in and when to shut up, my hugs. Every clinician has her or his own personal armamentarium as therapeutic as any drug. My dear young colleague, you are not a fraud. You are a flawed and unique human being with excellent training and an admirable sense of purpose. Your training and sense of purpose will serve you well. Your humanity will serve your patients even better. That was Suzanne Coven, doctor, writer-in-residence, and author of Letter to a Young Female Physician. You can order Letter to a Young Female Physician anywhere books are sold, though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. You can also follow Suzanne on social at Suzanne Coven, MD. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. 
I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.